And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. You're just moments away from the latest episode of The Bridge. Just what is the Ukrainian resistance movement doing in its fight against Russia? Brian Stewart is here with the answer. Quite the story yesterday in the Ukraine war, and I'm not sure whether you heard about it, but I think it's a it's kind of a marker. It's a first, if you will, in this war that started back in February. Well, what is it? Well, there was a prisoner exchange yesterday. Nothing new about that. There have been prisoner exchanges on a fairly regular basis between Ukraine and Russia. As the Ukrainians say, Every Ukrainian soldier, every frontline commander should remember this. The more Russian prisoners we have, the sooner we will be able to free our heroes. So, in other words, capture Russians, trade them for Ukrainians. But what was the trade yesterday that became a first in this war? Here's the answer. For the first time since the war began... The two sides traded about 100 prisoners, all of whom were women. That's right. Now, some of these may have been fighters. Some of them may have just been prisoners. But whatever the case is, that's all that was traded yesterday. Women from both sides going back and forth between their countries. Interesting. The Russians have always been known to have... Uh, female fighters, Second World War, they had a lot of dedicated and brilliant female fighters in that war. Clearly, they still have some today, and so do the Ukrainians. All right, it's Tuesday, and Tuesday we talk Ukraine. And we talk it with my good friend, and a good friend to many of you through the means of the media and especially television. Originally started as a newspaper columnist in Montreal and then in the early 70s moved into television with the CBC and that's where I first met Brian Stewart. We were on the same training course together. I think it was around 1972 or maybe 73, somewhere in there. And uh, we've been friends ever since worked together we were both on the uh, uh the parliament hill bureau the cbc uh then brian moved to toronto worked for the journal while i was working for the national and brian went to uh, nbc for a while he reported for them another a, a number of major world scoops by the man we called scoop because of the many investigative journalism pieces he did first out of ottawa and then later in covering conflicts around the world. Anyway, Brian came back to the CBC, much to the luck of the CBC, and um, finished his career doing everything from in-studio hosting to covering conflicts. Uh, He's a military analyst of the first order. Uh, He studies military situations around the world constantly and still does today. And that's why we've been relying upon him to give us the results of his studies and investigation into the conflict that's going on in Ukraine. 
And uh, once again today, that is the case. And the most interesting part of this interview, I think you're going to find, is uh, when we get to the, uh, and it's as a result of a question from one of you, um, about the resistance fight that's going on inside uh, Ukraine by Ukrainian resistance fighters against the Russian invading troops. And there's, you know, it brings back, you know, memories of the stories of the French resistance in the Second World War and other resistance operations in different conflicts around the world. So there are a number of questions from the uh, audience here, to uh, from you, our audience, uh, to Brian. And, uh, well, why don't we get to it, right? Why don't we get to Brian Stewart? Um, or should we take our first break? Let's take our first break. I've got you set up. I've got you at the edge of your seats. You're all anxious. You're all ready. We'll take a quick break, and then we'll be right back with Brian Stewart. And welcome back. You're listening to The Bridge, the Tuesday edition. That means the Brian Stewart edition. You're listening on Sirius XM, Channel 167, Canada Talks, or on your favorite podcast platform. So let's get to it. Here we go. Um, as I said, Brian has uh, lots to say today. So as we say, I'd like to say, strap yourselves in. Here we go with Brian Stewart. So Brian, you've become so popular that uh, I get a lot of mail every week. And uh, of course, these are all, you know, like me, they're kind of amateur historians. We will kind of watch the thing unfold and we get confused on certain aspects of the story, the Ukraine story. And so they, uh, so who do we go to? Who do we turn to? We turn to Brian Stewart because it's Tuesday on the bridge. And so here's the first question. It's actually, it's related in a way uh, to Ukraine, but it's about Canada. And here's the question. It comes from Denise in Vancouver. Um, I have a question for Brian Stewart. I'm concerned about Canada's dwindling military. Seems recruitment is a problem, and many people left around the COVID vaccine issue, both voluntarily and involuntarily. What is Canada doing about this? Is it important, or do we just rely on the U.S. military? Well, uh, Denise is quite right to be concerned. Uh, the former, I mean, the current chief of the defense staff recently said in public that he was very, uh, very worried about the shortfall of troops in Canada. Uh, our Canadian forces are now down 10,000 positions below where they should be. Only one in 10 positions is now being filled. Uh, we have a double problem in this country. Um, these are turbulent times, we know, but we have a double problem with that. Fewer people want to stay in the military. There's a retention problem and fewer people want to join the military. Uh, there's a real uh, problem in getting enough recruits uh, right now in our society. I should mention one thing. Canada has a, a very alarming situation, uh, but uh, most developed countries have the same problem these days. The United States, Britain, most NATO countries are all having trouble finding uh, enough recruits. Uh, we run into a problem where, well, COVID didn't help, that's for sure. There was a, a tremendous strain on forces and on potential recruits uh, in that period. But uh, we, we have a mixed 
bag of problems. We have a labor shortage generally, uh, a smaller percentage youth population. Uh, there is a concern about uh, youth, not only about a quarter of youth uh, seem to be eligible for a military signing on right now. Yeah, obesity is a very big concern, certainly in the United States and in Britain. Uh, I'm not quite sure how it is in Canada, but it's a general concern throughout NATO, as is more common drug use, for instance. Um, but we're really getting only about half of what we need per month in terms of recruits. Uh, we have certain areas of the Canadian military that are very alarming. Uh, we are short of 130 pilots, for instance, uh, which is very worrisome given a, a small air force we have. Um, we have uh, basically a big, big shortfall in the, the military. And it's interesting, if I can go on about this, when surveys are taken by the media and others as to why uh, military seems to be becoming the less popular uh, employment. There are many reasons for it. One is that uh, um, there's a general lowering morale in uh, the service. Uh, there have been a lot of scandals over the years, a lot of feeling that it's, the military's been forced to be a social experimenter before all others. Um, now, there has to be change in the military. We know that. But militaries are often difficult to change because institutional tradition is so very strong in them. And when people change their tradition too much, there's a, sometimes a loss of identity. So we have a problem. We have to make reforms, but reforms themselves can cause other problems down the road. There's a great shortage of housing. Um, people who want to join the military have families. Are, there's a huge waiting list of thousands, apparently, waiting for proper military uh, housing in places, you know, from Halifax to Kingston to Toronto, you name it. Uh, that's impacting on the re recruiting quite a bit. Also, I think a lot of surveys show that the forces themselves are quite concerned of a, equipment is old. It's tattered. Canada's uh, reputation of very old fighter planes, for instance. Um, Peter, you've been up in a F-17. 18, F-18. 18. I get a kick out of whenever we say they're, they're so old. We, you and I covered when we bought them. <laughs> it seems well, like yesterday. I, I, I sat, I'll tell you this. I sat in the cockpit of the first CF-18, or F-18, before right. we had bought it, ever to land in Canada. In Ottawa, landed in Ottawa, I sat in the cockpit. I wasn't going up in the plane like you did, so I wasn't in any kind of gear. <laughs> I was just in a jacket and, uh, you know, trousers set. And uh, that was 1978 or 79, that long ago. And, the, you know, that basically is still our, our, our plane. Let me ask you, uh, let me ask you a follow up on the on the on the uh, recruitment sure. stuff, because there's an irony to it, in a sense. You know, we don't have the right numbers to train to get into the military because uh, recruitment is low. And yet we're being called upon and offering our services to train uh, young Ukrainian fighters who are just learning. Um I'm, I'm actually in Scotland right now, and one of the uh, areas that the Ukrainian soldiers are training in, 
because they're being trained by both uh, Canadians and uh, Brits and Americans uh, as well. Uh, but one of the areas is not far from the farmland where, where I'm on. And you can hear the rat-a-tat-tat of the, uh, of the guns going off far in, uh, far in the distance. But the irony of us training Ukrainian soldiers when we don't have the required number uh, to train ourselves. It is indeed uh, an irony. We've trained over 33,000 Ukrainian soldiers, and it'd be well above that number now because of our effort in the United Kingdom, as you mentioned. Uh, and we have a great shortage in Canada of those key role sergeants positions and non-commissioned officers to do the training. Uh, a lot of our pilots are now uh, being scheduled to train down in Texas or New Zealand because NATO countries are having to share out the training because almost all of them are short of trainers. A lot of the trainers are being put back in the air because we have so few pilots, we have to take trainers and put them in the air. Uh, so there's a stress on there. And basically, we're dealing with a general war, a giant war that broke out in Central Europe that nobody anticipated five years ago, and also a very quickly worsening position in the Pacific. Uh, of dire threats and worries about the future. So we have uh, two giant theaters, which Canada has to be urgently thinking about where we're going to position our Navy, how many sailors will we need, when were we going to get the new CF-35 uh, fighter planes, probably not for at least another four or five years. Uh, what do we do in the, in the interim? Um, all these things are compounding themselves and the last time the country really had a serious survey of the needs of its military was five years ago. We are, we're now doing an updated one in a hurry, but nothing gets hurried, as you know, in the Canadian government. It's quite extraordinary the more you look at Canadian forces, and I don't think I mean any I'm being critical of both parties here, so I'm certainly not biased, um, that procurement of new weaponry and new equipment and new vehicles seems to take forever for reasons that are never clearly explained by government ministers, whoever they are. We wait forever for new ships. We wait forever for new armored cars and aircranes, airplanes. The, the search has been going on, as you just mentioned, for, for decades. I mean, really, we've been thinking about getting a new plane. It's never fully explained why it takes so long to do these critical studies in um, in Canada. But I, a lot of generals, retired or saying privately, are saying the time for long delay is over. Canada has to move much faster, as does the rest of NATO and other countries around the world, to upgrade its its basic military defenses in so turbulent and unpredictable, unpredictable world. We can't just assume now that we can, well, well, we can count on pretty much peaceful uh, affairs last, lasting in uh, Europe for another decade, and the Pacific will be all at peace for, say, another 10, 15 years. We can't, we can't take that easeful position anymore. We have to be much more rapid fire in the decisions we make and current in the, uh, the, 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 the positioning of our forces around the globe. Okay. Um, I'm going to take a second question here from, and this one's from Fran Wallace in Victoria, BC. Uh, here's her question. Um, 
And when we've done this, we'll, we'll get to the current situation on the ground uh, in Ukraine, although this touches on it in a way. Um, a few months ago, in a discussion about Ukraine, Brian Stewart talked about Ukraine's resistance forces. If I'm interpreting his comments correctly, he noted Ukraine's resistance forces were different because they had structure and support from the government right from the moment of creation, unlike most countries where resistance forces form and develop during a conflict and as the war progresses, become more organized and helped by the government. I believe he also indicated that Ukraine's resistance would be playing an increasingly involved role in the war as time progressed. There have been some devastating assaults on Russian territory in the last few months. The most recent involved that fire and collapse of the Crimean Bridge. I'm wondering if Mr. Stewart knows whether these assaults were done by the Ukraine resistance or if he can give, uh, at least give us any sort of update on the Ukrainian resistance's status. Mr. Stewart means you, Brian, so <laughs> you're, on, you're on, on tap now for an answer. Okay. Well, I can certainly confirm that there have been a lot of resistant attacks within Russian-occupied zones. I wouldn't give 100% confirmation that uh, the, the, they involved, were involved in the bridge, but they have certainly been involved in, uh, in other areas. It's known as the Free Ukraine Resistance Movement. And what's really interesting about it, as we said, it, it was established at the center. Really, it's been eight years in the development uh, from the time that Russia uh, invaded and took over uh, Crimea and then uh, backed separatist uh, pro-Russian forces in the Donbass and other areas. Uh, the U Ukraine government has been building a resistance movement that would spring into operation uh, when it was attacked. Um, and in fact, there are two forces that are brought together uh, under a, a Ukraine resistance, um, and they work very closely with, this is important to lay this down, with the Special Operations Command of the Ukrainian government. So there are two forces that would be working behind Russian lines. One of the special forces, uh, you know, a bit like special forces in all Western government, very, you know, trained commandos, trained to go in and fight behind enemy lines. They've been very active and it's believed they've also been active within Russia itself. The resistance movement would, was grew out of local militia, local civilians who have been training since really going back to uh, 2014, at least in 2016, uh, more aggressively to take on uh, invaders. Uh, they pre-positioned uh, ammunition supplies and weapon supplies. They've trained in how to operate effectively with uh, as few casualties as possible. And they've had years to work out their targets. And their targets that we're now noticing, and there's almost an attack a day, uh, if you look at it on a month-by-month -month basis, their targets are they're going after collaborators with the Russians. Those should be local police working with the Russians uh, and local officials uh, trying to uh, carry out Russian commands. They're going after uh, bridges, uh, some roads, power supplies, rail lines. Several trains have even been attacked. Uh, they have night patrols that go out at night uh, looking for isolated Russian positions. But a big part of their work, too, is, uh, is intelligence, sending information back to the Ukrainian forces, to the special forces, as where they're noticing secrets, hidden supplies of Russian ammo uh, and that armament and the rest of it. 
They get that back. And because of the long range precision weapons that the Ukrainians now have, they don't have to have the local guerrillas go in and try and attack them. They can take them out using the HIMARS. These, these are remarkable long range uh, missiles that can, you know, hit 35 miles behind enemy lines, that kind of stuff. Um, and, but above all, Maybe the biggest impact they're having, they, they create chaos, the guerrilla movements do, is because the Russian forces, which were so under strength to begin with, are trying to protect their own front lines, also have to detail troops to go back on guard duty and on anti, anti-partisan uh, patrols and the rest of it. And that's causing, again, a further strain on the whole Russian command. Um they're, they're, they've got a lot of uh, they've got a lot of method in their their uh, their activities very very active in Zaporizhia region and particularly around the city of Melitopol uh, where they've been extremely active on night patrols and enemy forces and also in Kherson which has now seen a, a Ukrainian advance so yes, they're they're very much there. They've been long prepared before the war, and they seem to know what they're doing. The problem, of course, is that this is always the case with guerrilla movements. Uh, when they attack, the Russians are quite capable. The occupiers are quite capable of taking vicious reprisals against innocent civilians. We've seen that in, in massacres and the rest of it that have been appearing in this war. So that you the, the command control of a guerrilla movement like the Ukrainian one has to take into account if you attack this railway line, are they going to then turn around and attack the nearby villagers who live close by it? In World War II, that was always a big concern of the French resistance, for instance. If we attack the Germans at this place, will they retaliate with a massacre in the local area, which is quite possible? You know, I've been watching this incredible french series called a french village i don't know whether you've seen any of it yet it's not it's not translated there there is um you know captioning at the bottom of the screen but it deals uh, you know there's it's been seven or eight years of running and it's the story of a french village that was um occupied by the germans during the second world war and so much of it is about this this tug between resistance and collaboration and it, you know, it, it's gut wrenching, and uh, and the decisions made by the resistance fighters, knowing full well just what you're suggesting, that if they take out that rail track or if they kill a German officer, there's going to be huge retaliation, and it's going to come at the expense and the lives of ordinary citizens. Um, let me uh, let, let me move on to the current um, situation because. Trying to uh, figure out exactly what's happening right now on the ground in Ukraine. I mean, there is a lot of fighting going on uh, in at least three different uh, parts of the uh, of the country, and um, just what is being uh, you know changed in terms of the dyna- dynamic of the of the conflict itself by all this fighting because it it seems in these last few weeks. The intensity of fighting has gone up, but it's unclear whether anything has really changed in terms of uh, the way the war is unfolding. 
Yes, it seems overall that there, there's very intense uh, fighting on the north, the center, and the southern fronts, uh, but relatively little movement. Some movement in the, the south, Herson, but uh, generally cautious uh, uh, and smaller movement than we've seen in the north uh, in, in past weeks. Um, what's really going on is the Ukrainians are having to somewhat resupply. They've been an enormous push. They want to get in major pushes, at least one, maybe two, before the winter sets in. But that means they have to bring up more troops. They have to re re change the troops around, bring in fresh units. They're ready for combat and, and, and rest exhausted units and get ready for these major pushes that hopefully they think can get in before the wet season and, and military slows down. So basically, it's a lot of exchange of artillery right now. Precision fire on the Ukrainian side, some precision, but not much on the Russian side. And it's everybody's kind of holding their breath because it's it's very much anticipated the Ukraine's going to make at least one major, major effort. Um, in the next few weeks to try and gobble up as much land as possible before the winter sets in and, and movement uh, is restricted. And also basically to take out as many Russian, to knock off as many Russian casualties as they possibly can. They know it's costing themselves a lot of casualties, but bit by bit by bit, this war is becoming more unpopular inside Russia itself. So the Russian, the Ukrainians want to keep up the pressure, get as many wounded and killed and prisoners as possible uh, on the Russian side. Um, that is going on. Um, there's some very interesting movement going on in the southern front, Kherson, where the Ukrainians are moving um, against about five to 10,000 Russians, it's not clear, in the northern part of Kherson, who are almost cut off from supply. Uh, their commanders wanted to get their troops out of that group, group to the north, basically on the west of the Dnieper River. People are following a map. Uh, but Putin said, no, absolutely not. That would be an enormous loss of face for Russian rock and do it. So we've got a lot of Russians there. The Ukrainians think they can possibly trap. Uh, and they want to take back the city of Kherson, the one major city that fell to the Russians early on in the invasion, and the only really one they lost without much of a fight. They want to take that back, but they don't want to get involved in a big urban fight, which is so costly. Uh, and to civilians, let alone to their own troops. Um, so they want to sort of circle as much of the territory as possible and get as many surrenders as possible. That'll be portrayed, probably playing itself out over coming months. But that's the situation right now. People holding their breath. Of course, the Russians are firing a lot of uh, missiles and, and, and what have you at the Ukrainian cities, which is not having any discernible impact on morale of Ukrainians or determination to fight of Ukrainians. Um, I want to take you back for a minute to something you said earlier, because it's a question that has been has puzzled me over the last, especially the last couple of months of this uh, of this war. You talked about the um, what are they called HIMAR uh, artillery um, operations that the Americans gave to the Ukrainians. These these right. super um, uh, ability to fire big uh, artillery shells, but. They're very target specific, right? They know right. they dial in whatever the GPS coordinates and, you know, one is a certain building 
35, 50 miles away, bang, it hits that building yeah. and that building alone, not the, you know, apartment block next to it or what have you, or at least that's the theory. Yeah. Now, the reason I, I asked the question about these missiles is surely the Russians have something comparable where they have uh, the ability to be very target specific. And yet every day we see, you know, whether it's, schools or playgrounds or theaters or, or what have you that the Russians uh, appear to be hitting and, and saying, well, you know, we, we were just off the mark or something. It's hard to believe in this day and age with the kind of a, a high-tech equipment that's possible that you can be off the mark. When we've witnessed now, and it's not like suddenly discovered or, or, or being used in the last you know, a year or so, we've seen these kind of weapons. You've seen them when you covered the both Gulf Wars uh, and, and other conflicts. They've been around for years, decades now. Um, so are the Russians just giving us a line or are they using antiquated equipment? Well, I think antiquated equipment is a lot of it. Uh, their, their technology is not as advanced uh, in, in this area as NATO equipment. And by the way, as well as the Americans, you've also got extraordinary uh, uh, howitzers from France called Caesars, who have also almost exactly the same precision ability. The Russians have some uh, precision cruise missiles, but they seem to be running low on them. And of course, they're cost a fortune in all of them. And they've been firing a lot of them off. And they, they probably want to keep some back uh, in case this war goes really uh, wild. So they seem to be more and more restricted in any precision weapons they may have and are just hurling stuff in, trying to cause as maximum casualties and destruction as possible. It is interesting, though, that the, uh, the one of the very experienced war correspondents with the, the London Times, um, Oliphant, noticed that uh, a lot of the buildings being hit were once upon a time a Soviet command headquarters. And he thinks the Russians, in fact, have some vague precision, but a lot of it's old Soviet maps that they tend to be using. A lot of these stories seem absolutely hard to believe until you get the intelligent assessments of conversations going on and Russians complaining about old equipment and tires and trucks that burst and and, and weapons just not working uh, properly. So I think what the Russians are faced with, they have less precision weaponry than uh, the Ukrainians. Um, the Ukrainians are getting more and more of it almost every day. Uh, they have to hold some back in reserve because you can never throw all your top weapons in at, at, at any given time without counting on a real contingency coming up later. And uh, that means they're shopping around for, um, you know, things like these Ukrainian uh, kamikaze drones uh, to use, uh, and uh, which are much less really effective than anything being uh, hurled on by the Ukrainian side. That seems to be the case. I mean, people, the Western military, to some extent, have been scratching their heads saying, look, the Russians can't really be this bad. I mean, the worst thing you could possibly do right now is just throw uh, missiles and, and artillery fire into heavily fortified civilian areas, causing these casualties that go out on around the globe 
on networks and television night after night after night, which is hurting our reputation for not only humanity, but also for precision guided anything. Uh, this is just crazy. Uh, they can only be doing that because they have no other alternative. <laughs> Um, I mean, I think they used it. They did have some precision guided weaponry at first, which they did use against the, uh, the Ukrainian Air Force to some extent, and also to Ukrainian air defenses. And a lot of their best weaponry was used because the Russian Air Force is very reluctant to fly into Ukrainian airspace because they feel the Ukrainians still have too many um, anti-aircraft systems of various kinds, missile and and, and guided weapons. Um, so they used a lot of their precision weapon on those specific targets. Okay. Um, we've gone on uh, quite a bit here today, and uh, I feel more informed as a result of that. Uh, but I'm going to try and squeeze in one last question. Um, you've kind of warned us before about being very careful about listening to some of these stories that involve POWs. Um, I mean, the Geneva Convention is pretty clear about uh, how countries are supposed to treat POWs and not use them as sort of, uh, uh, you know, to parade them in front of the cameras. Um, but clearly, uh, uh, you know, countries in conflicts question POWs to find out whatever information they can get. Uh, there seems to be some stuff that has leaked out in the last little while uh, about what some of the Russian POWs are saying. Now, once again, I sort of caution because you cautioned us to be careful about what about these stories and what to believe about them. Uh, but on the other hand, some of what they're saying uh, is pretty dramatic about uh, the kind of low morale that's on that side at the moment. Donna, weigh in yeah. on that? Oh, yeah, definitely there seems to be a consensus of low morale that's come in from all fronts. There are very few units that have shown anything other than very low morale. In terms of listening to prisoners, my, my basic caution to everybody is a lot of pressure right now should be put on the Red Cross. It is the Red International Red Cross's absolute duty to check up on POW camps. And uh, it, it bothers me that we don't know how many the Ukrainians are holding Russians, how many of their holding. We, I don't see why we can't know that. And we, there are places where Russians are holding Ukrainian uh, soldiers where uh, there have been no Red Cross inspections recently at all. So I think, you know, the world should be saying, wait a minute, what is going on with the prisoners of war there. But it's, it's a funny thing. I mean, a lot of the pr Russian prisoners of war that have been talked to by reporters and others are definitely showing signs of extraordinary low morale. And that seems to be a damn near universal. Um, the one thing they're noticing, uh, slightly amusing the Ukrainians, that almost all the Russians that come in under surrender in command are claiming that to be draftees. They didn't want to join the army at all. They were dragged out of their civilian jobs and sent to Ukraine where they didn't want to fight because Ukrainians are our good friends. And why are we here? A little bit of checking by the Ukrainian often finds that these guys were not draftees at all, but were volunteers who joined up in recent years to be part of the, uh, the Russian military. So, I mean, all the, always have to be careful of what uh, these 
POWs say. They're, they're trying to look after their own welfare, of course, and they're trying to do say things that uh, won't get them into trouble one day when they're released and they have to go home. But I think there's been general sign of torture amongst the Russians, uh, and I would like to be a lot more reassurance from Red Cross and other humanitarian groups that the, the same has not occurred on the Ukrainian side as well. I don't think it has because they have media all around them um, looking for signs of this. But they are keeping a lot of secrets when it comes to POWs, and that is worrisome. I, uh, all I would say about the media, uh, you know, clearly the media is getting closer to the action from the Ukrainian side than they are from the Russian side. But the actual right up to the action, there's very little coverage. Yeah, uh, very, very little. From uh, on either side. Listen, we get Brian, much of the same coverage over and over and over again, which is a destroyed house and, and, and poor older folks who are left behind. It seems to be the same story is told very, very frequently. All right, we're going to leave it at that. As always, uh, Brian, thank you so much. Look forward to talking to you again next week. Thanks, Peter. Brian Stewart with us uh, again. It's Tuesday. That's Brian Stewart Ukraine Day. Um couple of things to note before we leave um, in our kind of end bit section for this day. Uh, first of all, earlier today, we passed the 5 million download mark, uh, which for a little podcast that uh, is done out of home, basically, uh, is uh, we're pretty proud of that fact. Uh, 5 million in the podcast world, uh, the number of downloads um, is pretty impressive. As I said yesterday, there are thousands and thousands of podcasts out there, some really good ones, uh, some very specific ones on certain areas uh, that you may be interested in. Um, but many podcasts, many choices, and as a result, we're very lucky to have uh, the kind of dedication we have in terms of our, our listener base. And I think it's partly due to the, uh, the fact we like to focus on issues and spend more than a few seconds or a few minutes on them, as we just did with Brian on the Ukraine story from a number of different angles, including some of your questions uh, for the past half hour or so. All right, a couple of uh, more traditional end bits. This one comes from Yahoo News. This one, I guess in some ways I'm not surprised anymore by the way technology is offering us uh, insights into, uh, into our world that we never had a chance of doing before. This one is, is about how heat from fingertips can be used to crack passwords. At least that's what, uh, what a certain uh, number of researchers at the University of Glasgow in Scotland um, have developed. I'll read you uh, a bit of the story. Heat-detecting cameras can help crack passwords up to a minute after typing them. Okay? A minute after typing in a new password or an old password that you're using to get into your account, they can crack it. Researchers have found this as they warn similar systems could be developed by criminals to break into computers and smartphones. Heat from people's fingertips can be detected on recently used keyboards and when thermal images were combined with the help of artificial intelligence, informed guesses of what the password could be were made by a tool developed by researchers at the University of Glasgow. 
86% of passwords were cracked when thermal images were taken within 20 seconds of typing in the secret code and put through their thermo-secure system, and 76% when within 30, 30 seconds. Success dropped to 62% after 60 seconds of entry. Man, I guess you got to get to that keyboard pretty quick. But... You know, that's, uh, <laughs> that's interesting. Heat from your fingertips on the keyboard, keyboard when you've typed in your password. If you've got the right gadgetry, you can figure out just from the heat that hit those keys, the password keys, what the letters were. And then it's just a random um, attempt at putting those in the right order. Go figure, right? Okay, here's the last one for this day. And this, this is the kind of story that can make me feel young and feel that there's a lots to go in my life. The Guinness Book of World Records has just named the world's oldest practicing doctor. And he has no plans to retire. He's 100 years old. He lives and works, practices, in Ohio. Dr. Howard Tucker of Cleveland was initially certified as the world's oldest practicing doctor in February of 2021 when he was 98 years and 231 days old. Tucker, now at 100, said he continues to work full-time with his typical day lasting from 9 a.m. until 6 p.m. This is a story, by the way, from UPI. The doctor said he caught COVID-19 shortly after his 100th birthday in July. That's, hey, that's when I got it. But he continued to teach his residents via Zoom while recovering. What did he have to say about Keeping the record, I regard this Guinness World Record title as a singular honor and look upon it as another achievement in a long, satisfying, and happy life. I'll say, the centenarian whose wife, Sue, is 89 and who is also still working as a practicing psychoanalyst said he has no plans to retire. Gosh, no, he said. I believe retirement is the enemy of longevity. Even in my younger years, I never once contemplated retirement. When you love what you do and are still capable of doing it, why would you want to retire? Well, Dr. Tucker is 26 years older than I am, but I get it when he says that. You know, my, my dad retired when he was uh, in his mid-60s. And he lived another 20 wonderful years. You know, should he have kept working? He didn't think so. He wanted to enjoy those next 20 years, travel the world with my mom. Take it easy. He taught a little bit at university. You know, when I hit my mid-60s, I was doing some of the best work I think I've ever done in uh, my job at the CBC. And when I retired, as I hit 70, 
I thought, well, you know, I don't want to stop like doing stuff. And so my son pushed me actually to do this, do the podcast. And it started as a hobby and just, you know, occasionally do it, talk about the different things. And uh, one thing led to another. And then there was this little bidding war by a number of places who wanted to kind of own the distribution of the uh, podcast. And eventually that's what led to the deal with uh, Sirius XM. It managed to put it out to more people, um, no paywalls, the whole bit. And so that's what's happened. And I keep doing it. It keeps my mind active. I know some of you are saying, Jesus, Peter, your mind doesn't sound too active at some points in your podcast. Well, that's true. But I have fun and I enjoy doing it. And I love information. I love talking to people. I love doing interviews. So that's where we are with the bridge in uh, mid-October of 2022. Enjoying it. But salute to Dr. Tucker of Cleveland at 100. Good for him. World's oldest practicing doctor. That's it for this day. Tomorrow, Bruce joins us with Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth. We'll see what's on his mind. Thursday, the random renter, plus your turn. So if you have letters, best to get them in now. The Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com. The Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com. Please remember to add where you are writing from. And it's always great to hear from new listeners. So don't be shy. Drop us a line. Keep it short. I don't run the whole the whole email as you uh, probably noticed already. Just, you know, relevant parts. And uh, that's what we'll do. On Thursday, Friday, of course, good talk. Sean Bear and Bruce Anderson with us with the uh, political stories of the week. That's it for this day. I'm Peter Mansbridge. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you again in 24 hours. Wow. What's that? I guess I pushed the wrong button. That's what happens when you do these things at, uh, you know, 74. You get a little confused by all these flashing lights. And then finally, you go, here's the right one. Push it now. Now.